everybody, Julian Charles here of TheMindRenewed.com, coming to you, as usual, from the depths of the Lancashire countryside here in the UK. And today it's my great pleasure to welcome back to the programme Tom Gailey, author of the fascinating book America's Post-Christian Apocalypse, How Secular Modernism Marginalised Christianity and the Peril of Leaving God Behind at the End of the Age, which he came on the show a few weeks ago to discuss. And uh, as anyone who heard that first interview will know, we only managed to talk about a a small portion of that book, just a kind of introduction really, and we said that we'd probably need a couple more chats or so to cover the broad sweep of the book even slightly adequately, and actually maybe we'll need even more than that, I don't know, we'll see how things go. And uh, obviously I'm going to recommend, uh, highly recommend anyone who didn't hear that first interview to go and listen to that as well, preferably first, of course, before hearing the rest of what we have to say today. So here we are for part two two and uh, i will explain that just in, in a moment but first let's welcome our guest back to the show tom good to be speaking with you again how are you doing good julian thank you so much for having me back on and how are you keeping these days not too bad staying busy you know reading you know how long that takes i'm working on my second book actually i'm on chapter five so it's keeping me busy uh-huh and remind us what that's about um i'm not sure exactly what the title will be but it's right now tentatively it's transhumanism ai and the apocalypse uh-huh. and uh basically i'm i talk a lot about transhumanism how artificial intelligence and the super intelligence that they're coming up with and then i'll try to tie it in with the apocalypse the book of revelation see where we're heading with all of this so it's really pretty exciting i'm, I'm really excited to write it Hopefully, maybe by 2017, I'd hope to have it out. Oh, great. Well, by then, perhaps we'll have finished talking about this book, and we can segue straight into your new book. Um, That's great. And you said before the interview that you're doing a, a lot of reading for that, and you were stressing how much time is involved in reading things properly. And, of course, when I reflect on the amount of reading you did for that first book, and I just look at your footnotes, you know, you did a tremendous amount. It's taken you a very long time to do this, hasn't it? Yes. It took me off and on. Some years I did not work on it because I was working a full-time job, but um, it really did take me almost 20 years to put it all together. I think it was by God's grace I didn't finish it earlier because it would have been a different book if I would have not included what happened after the financial collapse and then to see where really all of this is starting to accelerate. So, um, Yes, it's important. It worked out that way. Absolutely. Yeah. Yes. Great. So thanks ever so much for coming back on. So today we're going to be looking mainly at, I think, is it chapters three and four of your book where you, well, really what you're doing is you trace some major lines of thought in various European philosophers and theologians, the way these thoughts contributed ultimately to where we're at today in Western culture. And I'll just remind listeners of how you characterize the current situation. You you say, and this is a quote from your book, over the past century and a half, secular modernism stroke postmodernism has increasingly replaced Christianity as the hegemonic authority in our society, uh, end quote. And of course, you explained to us exactly what you meant by that last time. And you, you basically trace that back to developments in thought that flowered during the Enlightenment period, so that's the sort of 17th, 18th century kind of time, and you show how those led to the current situation, to the way people tend to think these days. So 
As I said last time, you look at these famous thinkers, these philosophers and theologians, rather like the way Francis Schaeffer did in terms of style. You you paint with this broad brush to give us a chance of, of forming in our minds the basic contours of these lines of thought and how they developed. And I think it's a great way of doing that. So I'm hoping that our conversation will follow a similar pattern today. We'll have a kind of broad view of things. But I'm going to add here, before we get going with this, that obviously that means we're going to be simplifying a great deal in order to do this. And what I want to say straight away is even those philosophers that I'm somewhat familiar with, I'm very rusty on, because the last time I spent any serious time looking at historical philosophy was probably about 20 years ago. So (laughs) I am very rusty, but I'm going to do my best. And I'm confident, Tom, that you'll be helping my memory along as we go. Sure. So um, let's start with a, a reminder, really, of the way you characterize the current intellectual climate. Could you briefly remind us what you mean by secular modernism stroke postmodernism has increasingly replaced Christianity as the hegemonic authority in our society? Well, basically, it's become the default worldview, at least in our society. And I'm, I'm sure yours actually was secularized before ours. Christianity was the authority and culture was it was the moral underpinning. Um, and that is no longer the case. And basically, secularism isn't just Christianity versus the secular world. It's also the notion about the here and now. That's basically what secular means. It's all about the here and now. There's nothing to do with eternity. And modernism goes right along with that. It's the loss of the supernatural. And like secularism, it's kind of the notion of the loss of ecclesiastical authority. And it's like a turn to one's own personal experience unbridled belief in progress, but it's basically like a desacralization of the world and more of a scientific orientation. That's the default worldview in our culture, and increasingly so. How would you explain postmodernism? Obviously, it's very much related to modernism, but how would you explain that? Technically, it's a rejection of the Enlightenment project, which was truth was objective. And now in postmodernism, like I say in my book, I think some of it is overblown. Everybody, there were a lot of the books have come out over the last 20 years. Everything is postmodern, this, postmodern, that. And I just, I don't all agree with that. I think most people still operate on a, say, a Newtonian mechanistic level where there is objective truth. But the one place I do think postmodernism has taken over, and that is the notion that truth is relative. Instead of a correspondence theory of truth, where truth is what corresponds with reality, we now have this notion of pragmatic truth. Whatever works for me is the truth. Let's just put it in the realm of religion. So, like, if you're a, a particular religion, if that works for you, well, then that's true for you. If you're another religion, well, that works for you, that must be true. And, it, and it's just ridiculous. For example, a secular humanist who does not believe God exists, and then you have a Christian, and he believes God does exist, they both can't be true. Because one of them logically must be wrong. But the pragmatic view of truth would say, oh, no, as long as it works for you, it's the truth. Well, that doesn't work. It's not correct. No, no. And I think we did actually mention last time that William Lane Craig, the uh, Christian philosopher, often says that postmodernism is something that is certainly true in our culture with respect to religion and morals. But elsewhere, most people are still moderns. And I think you were sort of saying that a moment ago. Although I would note that, you know, again, that's broad brush because, you know, I have noticed that there is a an instrumentalism within the scientific world, you know, sort of non-realism in the physics world, for example. So somebody like Stephen Hawking, I believe, has a kind of non-realist view of what he's doing, 
which is interesting. That is related in a way to postmodernism. You know, the idea there is that you're actually modelling reality, but you're not making a claim that that necessarily maps onto reality as it really is. Now, that's that's an interesting way of thinking, and it's going to dovetail with what we say about some of the thinkers that we're going to be talking about today. And I'm going to uh, preempt immediately by saying I'm sure Kant will come up in connection with that. Um, but we'll we'll see. So um, let's look at some of these philosophers and theologians, uh, the characters themselves a little, and particularly the trends that they brought in and developed. So you start in your book with St. Thomas Aquinas. Of course, he was a major philosopher in European history. And I'm, I'm just saying that because in case anybody might be thinking, well, he shouldn't be called a philosopher. He was a theologian, wasn't he? <laughs> but, you know, at the time, such distinctions just weren't there. And um, I'll just note that Aquinas himself gets a whole chapter on his own in uh, Bertrand Russell's A History of Western Philosophy. So let's start with Thomas Aquinas. What part does he play in your narrative? Well, back as far as he went, philosophy and theology, and you made a really good point about that, they work together in conjunction to support the truth of Christianity. Um, and that was known as the medieval synthesis. So faith and reason worked together, and they never contradicted each other. And like you said, I mean, Aquinas was a monumental figure. He was an apologist for Christianity and, you know, wrote volumes of works. He's actually pre-Enlightenment period, but I just thought he was important to bring up because back then, faith and reason never contradicted each other, and today they do. So we can go along here and then see how this happened. Right. Um, or faith and reason are seen to be in conflict. Yeah. yeah. Um, he was, uh, is it what you call a scholastic thinker? And we're talking about, what are we talking about? The well, medieval period. So uh, 12, he was... He was 1225, roughly. They're not that mm -hmm. sure, but 1225 to 1274. Would it be right to characterize what he was doing as more of a philosophical approach to theology than many people might think? Yes, I think so. Yeah, because he brought in a lot of stuff from Aristotle, too. So he basically wanted to defend the faith so that it would be palatable to the scholars at that time. Mm -hmm. So he felt that was you know, maybe a more neutral ground to do that on. So this was a whole integrated field of study and thought. It wasn't as if theology and philosophy were split off from each other and there were lots of tensions between the two. This was a whole way of thinking. Yes, that's why they call it the medieval synthesis. Great. Yeah. Okay, so the next person who you move to changes things, the British scholastic called William of Ockham, from whom we get Ockham's razor. Um, right. Do you want to tell us something about him and, and why he's important in things changing? Sure. Now, he was about maybe half a century later than Aquinas. He was around, say, 1280 to about 1349. He had these really, to say, weird ideas about God. He felt that God's freedom was so radical that he could command us to hate him. This is how radical his ideas about God were. Um, he thought there was no limits on God's will. And so God for him was this very capricious being, and he could no longer be understood by human reason. And what happened was, for Occam, God could only be known by faith. Now, what starts to happen here is then now this faith and reason, this medieval synthesis started to break down because of Occam's capricious notions about God. God is so unpredictable. Like I said, in Occam's mind, he could command us to hate him. So people started to be terrified of this God, especially in result of the Black Death. Right. I mean, they didn't know if they could trust him. And this really started to break down this medieval synthesis where God could be, you could use your reason, you know, like when Aquinas was trying to use arguments to prove God's existence or whatever, that now was undermined because of Occam's notion of God. 
So it actually marked the beginning of intellectual skepticism, basically. Okay, very interesting. Now, you give this the tag voluntarism, and don't want anybody to be confused with political voluntarism or voluntarism. It's not the same thing at all, is it? Um, This is to do with placing the will, and in this case, of course, the will of God at the centre of his being. Now, if Occam is thinking about the will of God in this very strictly philosophical way, then presumably he's arriving at these rather strange ways of looking at God by having a philosophy that's, what can I call it, self-consciously distanced from Scripture. Would that be right? Is he actually standing aside from Scripture and saying, what can we by just pure logic know about God, and then ending up with a God that is not really very biblical? Would that be right? I would agree with that, yeah. I'm not sure he did it on purpose. I'm not sure it was purposeful. Mm -hmm. But, yeah, he had some very strange notions, and it really – it had a big effect. I mean, I think about four-fifths of the universities by the 15th century were affected and were nominalist. So he's not just some obscure figure. I put him in there because most people don't bring him up at all. And he really did have a big effect on what was going on at that time. Yeah. It's interesting because we can see it in a negative sense, but we can also see it having some positive fruit as well. Certainly Bertrand Russell, of course, no great friend of Christianity, um, sees something positive in what William of Ockham did. Let me just quote from his History of Western Philosophy. He says that by insisting on the possibility of studying logic and human knowledge without reference to metaphysics and theology, Ockham's work encouraged scientific research. His attitude gave confidence to students of particular problems, for instance, his immediate follower, Nicholas of Oresme, who investigated planetary theory. This man was, to a a certain extent, a precursor of Copernicus. He set forth both the geocentric and the heliocentric theories and said that each would explain all the facts known in his day so that there was no way of deciding between them, end quote. Which is quite an interesting quote there from Russell, suggesting that if Russell's right, then it did give confidence to people to come up with theories which perhaps the authorities at the time might have frowned upon, but here they found an intellectual tradition beginning where they could feel free to think outside the box, as it were. So there's something positive, isn't there, to be said about the guy? I would think so, but I would wonder how he would categorize anything scientifically, because Occam was a nominalist, so he didn't really believe in universals. So I don't know. I don't know if I would agree with Russell's assessment or not. He certainly did not take the mainline interpretation of Christianity or anything else. So, yes, he did put, like I said, he marked the beginning of intellectual skepticism. So, in that way, I I would agree with him. Mm -hmm. Okay, so we do have this landscape shaping up here that whatever the pros and cons of what Occam was doing, nevertheless, he did begin to split this medieval synthesis and so presents a challenge for the way people were starting to think in new ways, uh, which may have positive and negative things about it. And so your next step in this is to jump quite a bit and to look at René Descartes, the French philosopher, mathematician, scientist. And you look at him in the context of the world that, of course, had benefited from the printing press, the Gutenberg press, mid-1400s, often seen as marking the beginnings of the democratisation of knowledge. And you also put it in the context of the Protestant Reformation um, in the mid-1500s, starting to sort of free people up from ecclesiastical authority. But you note that with these freeings up that were happening, there came 
serious conflicts in ideas and unfortunately physical battles with the Thirty Years' War in the mid-1600s. So what I want to ask you here is how did the squabbles of the time feed into what Descartes actually saw himself doing as a Christian philosopher? Well, you can't underestimate the devastation of the Thirty Years' War. It was like 1618 to 1648. It was a series of wars. And basically, people and scholars were both beginning to think, look, you know, maybe we need to find another way out of this uh, quagmire. So um, they wanted to find a more neutral ground. And this is where Descartes came in and basically shifted the nature of knowledge from theology to philosophy. Right, yes. Yeah. Yeah, so I'm just sort of trying to paint an image in my mind about this. So I'm picturing, say, people from various denominations standing around. They've all got the same Bible. <laughs> uh, thanks to the Gutenberg Press, we might say. And, you know, you have one denomination looking at one way, another denomination looking at it another way, and uh, they might agree on lots of things, but there are some particular sticking points, and they're ending up in fierce debate about this. And Descartes is saying, well, actually, we need another way to approach truth. So how did he deal with this? Well, what he wanted to do was find a foundation that nobody could refute. Mm. Actually, he's known for the cogito ergo sum, which is I think therefore I am, but actually it was deeper than that. Was He got to the point where he thought you can't really trust appearances, how things appear. So he wanted to come up with something rational, and that's where the rationalism of Descartes comes from. And so he wanted to find this indubitable foundation from where all other truths could be derived, like a self-evident premise. And so he doubted everything to the point where he started to doubt his own existence and then said, well, wait a minute, I can't doubt my own existence because I'm the one doubting it. Yeah. Actually, it's, I think therefore I am, but actually before that it was, I doubt therefore I am. He doubted, therefore he knew he must exist. And then out of that came, I think therefore I am. And so he felt that you know all other premises could come from that. So what he did was, it kind of reversed this whimsical God of Occam because he said, basically, God is there and he is the reason behind the underpinning for our, that our reason works properly. So this is where reason actually became a force in the Enlightenment and became authoritative. But you can see already a shift here because it's now becoming kind of this anthropocentric shift. Knowledge starts with man. You know, it's kind of subtle, but it really is there. So that's basically his claim to fame. Yes. Now, in the book, you point out, of course, that he's a mathematician. And one of the tendencies for a mathematician will be, of course, to try to deduce things from first principles. So it does make quite a lot of sense that he would try to start with a single point, as it were, and deduce everything from there. So this comes immediately back to the cogito ego sum, however you, you pronounce yes. it in Latin. I'm not sure. Um, so yeah, actually, I was going to say that there's a rather an irony here. We've already said that Descartes, of course, was a Christian, and yet he's unleashing some of the Enlightenment foundations of the Enlightenment here in what he's doing. So I'm wondering if you could sketch for us Enlightenment thought. How would you characterize that briefly? Well, basically, they accepted the light of reason to guide humankind into truth, um, and they believed the use of reason could be used to perfect the good life here and now instead of the life beyond that affected today with secularism. It's only concerned with here and now. And then they had this notion of human progress and kind of a utopian attitude based on the newly developed science and technology. They basically thought that man was good, like Locke, for example. He believed that the mind is a blank slate. And basically what Locke was getting at there is that it didn't owe anything to inheritance. So he was basically getting at the notion that there was no original sin and um, so that was basically one of their tenets, that man is basically good and can be enlightened 
and Rousseau also he felt that way too. He denied original sin, and basically they were they had a very tolerant attitude uh, for different religious beliefs and ways of life, as long as they didn't oppose what reason was willing to allow. I guess the other thing I would say is what they rejected. So we know what they accepted, but what did they reject? Well, they rejected superstition in all prejudice in all forms. They rejected ecclesiastical authoritarianism. They rejected the burden of tradition. Of course, Christianity would be part of that. So that's kind of just a summary of what some of these folks mm. context. Although interestingly, they didn't reject the whole of Christianity in most cases, did they? I mean, you talked about the rejection of superstition. Of course, there's a whole, <laughs> a whole discussion that could be had as to what that means, because typically they would reject miracle, which you know many Christian philosophers would say there's no way you can put that in the same category as superstition. Um, so there was a rejection of miracle, but not necessarily a rejection of everything to do with Christianity, was there? No. Like the deists came along. They wanted a safer, more convenient way to believe in God. So they didn't want to reject Christianity altogether, but they did reject the particulars of Christianity, like you just mentioned, the miracles. Um, that would include the resurrection, for example, wouldn't it, of course? Yes. I, I think in most cases, yes. Mm-hmm. Again, put it in the context of what was going on. They were trying to find a way that all the particulars of Christianity, all these particulars, would not cause war and strife. That was what they were trying to accomplish. And so theism was kind of a neutered version of Christianity. Mm. One could argue that it really was not Christian, but they did believe in the mm. creator God who, as you know, wound up the world like a clock and they just kind of let it run on itself. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So this was the sort of Newtonian vision of things played into that at the, around that time, didn't it? Yes. And then mm. uh, David Hume, you know, he, he had a blatant suspicion of the Christian miracles. Um, he actually, in his writings, though, he didn't come out and discard them. He just said that it was people's beliefs are just a result of custom habit or instinct. And so he um, he thought that miracles basically were just somebody people were mistaken or exaggerating. That was probably more probable what was going on with the miracles. But he never actually came out and um, disparaged the gospel miracles, although it was guilt by association. So that really had a big effect on what was going on because, um, of course, the miracles and the big miracle, which is Jesus was risen from the dead, of course, is going to come under attack from that. Mm, mm. And, of course, it is the case that he didn't say miracles don't happen, but his view was that it's unreasonable to believe in them because there isn't rational ground for belief, in his view. I think that's a good um, point, yeah. But that's, He just felt that people he, were more mista- they were just mistaken or exaggerating. He mm, didn't want to mm. attack them so much directly other than, you know, he was very big on you know, everything is a result of custom habit or instinct. He just thought these people were, you know, mistaken or exaggerating. And it's interesting that he has, I mean, even now, he's looked upon as being almost somebody you can't contradict, you know. I mean, well, perhaps my best friend did a, a PPE, that's a politics, philosophy and economics course at Oxford. You know, Hume was a big part of that. And, you know, it was as if, when he talked to me about it, it was as if, you know, if Hume had said it, well, that was it really. Hmm. <laughs> and yet, you know, my understanding is that Hume's argument with respect to miracle is not as anywhere near as sound as people tend to think it is. I mean, there's this book, isn't there? You've probably heard of it by John Earman, who is a very well-respected philosopher, and I've no reason to believe he's a Christian, called um, Hume's Abject Failure, where he he shows that his arguments don't really stand up when you you scrutinise them. But he's an interesting figure, isn't he, Hume? Because he's also somebody who rejects, to some extent... The Enlightenment, isn't he? The positivity of the um, the belief that reason is going to give us access to truth easily. He's, he's, he's quite pessimistic about knowledge in a way, isn't he? 
Right. Yeah, because he falls into the category of empiricism, so did Locke. So they felt that knowledge could come from the empirical realm, where Descartes thought it came from reason. So basically, Descartes is trying to find a foundation. So everything is deductive with him. It's the rationalism. It's deductivism. And with Locke and Hume, it's just the opposite. You know, knowledge doesn't come from your reason. It comes from the empirical realm, mm -hmm. which kind of goes along with science. So, yeah, he, um, he was very suspicious of just saying that reason could lead you to knowledge. But that's basically the difference between the rationalist and the empiricist. Yes. And then, of course. And uh, that's going to take us on to the next person we discuss. It's, it's very interesting that with both those figures, with Descartes and Hume, that there's a kind of narrowing down of the field of what can be known with certainty. By saying, OK, we're going to just look at things very rationalistically, or on the other hand, as you say, very empirically, you end up, say, with Descartes, the attempt to construct a worldview from philosophical principles. But then it's an enormous feat to get from those principles to the actual world that exists with all its variety and richness. And any step in that argument is going to be subject to debate and doubt. And with Hume, where he would say that, uh, for example, even cause and effect is not something that we know exists with any kind of mathematical certainty. We perceive it for sure, but we're kind of locked in our perceptions. Um, so there's this narrowing down of, of what can be known with certainty. And so you have this narrowing and this sort of contradiction between the rationalist approach and the empiricist approach. And you bring up next in your line of reasoning here in your book, you bring up the character of Immanuel Kant, who's really very important for addressing this situation. Do you want to tell us about him? Sure. Yeah, well, Kant was arguably one of the most important philosophical figures in the entire Enlightenment period, of, if not all of Western modern thought. What Kant wanted to do was to try to provide a solution for the intellectual shambles that both philosophy and religion were left in because of Hume's skepticism. Mm. So empiricists like Locke and Hume had said that true knowledge came through the senses. The rationalists, like we just mentioned, Descartes, said that true knowledge came through the intellect. So what Kant did was he forged a middle path for understanding the world that required both the intellect and sense experience. Um, so against the rationalists, Kant argued that thought without the content of experience, that doesn't produce any knowledge. Um, but on the other hand, he discredited the empiricists, claim that experience alone can produce knowledge. Uh, he pointed out that, for example, like if pure empiricism was correct, then there would be no categories with which to organize the data obtained from the world. And in fact, that was precisely the problem with Occam's nominalism. So what Kant ingeniously did was, he said that the mind was not passive, but it's active in evaluating the data of experience. So for Kant, the mind has cognitive forms that are imposed on and categorized the sense experience. And in this way, he combined the insights from both the rationalists and the empiricists. And I can talk about the noumenal and phenomenal realm if you want me to. Well, that would be interesting. We have brought that up a few times on the podcast in relation to a number of different applications of whatever we're talking about, the noumenal realm and the phenomenal realm. I mean, with Kant, those are two aspects of a, a whole reality. I mean, my understanding of Kant is that he still believed that reality was, was one thing, but nevertheless, he split it into two realms of, of what could be known. Do you, do you want to explain how those two realms work? Sure. Yeah. So basically, Kant believed that the way we understand data is confined to the realm of the phenomena, which is the realm of experience of the world of space and time. So the phenomenal realm is the world as it appears to us. 
But mm-hmm. there's a problem because how the world appears to us, and this is precisely the problem that Descartes had, how the world appears to us is different from how it exists independently of our experience of it. So as far as Kant was concerned, we can never have true knowledge of the world as it simply appears to us. Um, this is because we perceive the world of phenomena is different from how things really are in themselves, independent of our thought. So Kant basically said that the things, how they truly exist, is the noumenal realm. This is the realm of true knowledge, and humans can have no access to the noumenon, um, how the things themselves really exist. He felt that the way we understand the world is confined to the phenomenal realm um, as perceived by our mental faculties. And he believed in noumenal was a way to show that human knowledge can't go beyond the limits of the phenomenal realm. Um, and this is one of the things he addressed in his book, The Critique of Pure Reason, which uh, I have not read. It's it's a monster. Um, yes, it is. <laughs> so, um, yeah. But what happened here, as far as the, the, the entire thesis that we're getting at, it posed metaphysical problems for concepts like God. Mm. Because God certainly cannot be perceived in the phenomenal realm of our everyday life. So for Kant, that's perfectly okay. God resumes in the noumenal realm. Mm. But see, this is problematic for Christianity because it's as good as admitting that there can be no true knowledge of God's existence. For Kant, he thought he was doing Christianity a favor. He thought he was denying knowledge in order to make room for faith. Kant believed that faith and knowledge had nothing in common, and so he effectively placed God in the compartment of the noumenal realm, where in essence nothing could be known of him. So this has had a monumental effect. Mm. Uh, So how does this tie in with today? It affects us because this is precisely what science says. Every time you get in a discussion with people, they all say, well, science says this or science says that. They think that that is the realm of knowledge and that Christians, well, you guys just have faith. You know, you, you guys have the realm of faith, but we have real knowledge on our side. And this is because Kant compartmentalized these things, and um, that's really not the way things work. So um, science, yes, it does deal in the phenomenal realm, but Christianity, we do have more than just faith for what we believe. They should not be put in separate mm-hmm. compartments, but basically this is a monumental thing that Kant did, and this is carried right down to us today, which is precisely why I wrote this chapter. Yes. We must be clear, and I think you have said it, that for Kant, God clearly exists. Yes. But it's the access to knowledge of God. But I mean, he did have arguments, didn't he, to suggest that, you know, that the only way reality makes sense, certainly morally, is if God does in fact exist. God is very much part of this nevertheless split worldview that he has. Yeah. Well, see, that's another thing he did. You're right. I mean, he definitely believed in God. But what's interesting is this anthropocentric shift, because before... See, Descartes had to believe God existed so that you could say your reason worked. But with Kant, because he believed the existence of God lay beyond the vein of pure reason like Descartes did, he wanted to put things on sure footing. So basically he said, okay, look, we live in a moral world because there seems to be this universal moral oughtness to the way we live. So um, basically from this practical concern, he derived God's existence from morality. But see, this is turning everything upside down. It's like a Copernican revolution. God's existence wasn't the foundation of morality as was traditionally thought. It was the other way around. The existence of morality provided the notion that God really exists. So, again, it places man in the center of everything, kind of like with Descartes. It places man at the center, including morality, and God at the periphery. So, um, basically, what Kant was trying to do was he was trying to avoid the implications of the Newtonian worldview where everything was part of this universal machine. 
That's right. So when yeah. we look at this machine, we shouldn't be surprised that it, in terms of things like soul and immortality and God, we shouldn't be surprised that it gives us a pessimistic view of things because, after all, we're just looking at it and bringing our interpretation to reality. But reality as it is in itself is because all these things got God and, and immortality and soul, and it's just that we're sort of behind a veil in some way. Right. Yeah, well, the thing of it is, you you can't have free will. So you've kind of was trying to figure mm-hmm. a way, how can you have free will if you were just a machine? See, that's what Lemaitre said. He said, well, man is just a machine. So yeah. he had to try to find a way where you can actually argue that we do have a soul. And, of course, you have a soul and you have things that are spiritual. Then you can have a, a God who is a spirit. He's got to find a, a way to introduce the spiritual realm into things. Otherwise, everything is just matter. And then you're just down to man as a machine, you mm-hmm. know, according to fixed mechanical laws. And it destroys morality, yeah. destroys um, free will. And so he was trying to find a way around that. Um, Which, did you say, was very ingenious. Yes, it was. I mean, you've got to give him that. Yeah, you've got to give him credit. Yes, you've got to give <laughs> him credit for that. It was yeah, incredible yeah. what he did to try to yeah. bring the uh, rationalists and empiricists together. You know, whatever you want to say about him, he was a genius in that endeavor. It was incredible. Mm. And he has still, like I said, he has had an incredible impact on us today and how we think and with how we review science and, and Christian, yes. how they interact with each other. Yes, absolutely. We will bring him up again a little later in the discussion, I'm absolutely sure. He was problematic, though, not just for Christian belief, but he's also problematic for science, wasn't he? Because... I remember reading, I didn't actually read the critique of pure reason all the way through, I was reading a commentary upon it, and I came upon a paragraph that he wrote, and it's really quite extreme, because he's describing water drops, and he says that virtually everything we observe of water drops seems to be produced by just the way we look at things, which seems to imply that a a raindrop, a water drop in itself, is something we just cannot know at all, and if that's true, then... How can you even have science? Can I, let me just do this little paragraph here, because it really struck me. Okay. Quote, if we take away the subject, that's humans, or even only the subjective constitution of our senses in general, then not only the nature and relations of objects in space and time, but even space and time themselves disappear, and that these as appearances cannot exist in themselves, but only in us. What may be the nature of objects considered as things in themselves and without reference to the receptivity of our sensibility is quite unknown to us. Not only are the raindrops mere appearances, but even their circular form, nay, the space itself through which they fall, is nothing in itself, but both are mere modifications or fundamental dispositions of our sensible intuition, whilst the transcendental object remains for us utterly unknown." End quote. Uh, you know, if you take that at face value, you can know nothing. You can't do science, can you? No, exactly. You know, as brilliant as he was, I mean, let's look at the noumenal realm where he said you, nothing that can be known about it. Okay. If nothing can be known about the noumenal realm, how does he know that unless he claims to know something about it? So that's self-stultifying. So as brilliant as he was, he couldn't see the yeah. internal contradiction there. So maybe you can know something. You know what? Look what Schaefer said, and I I like this. Schaefer says, quote, If a reasonable God made the world and has also made me, we are not surprised if he made the categories of the human mind to fit into the categories of the external world. Both are his creation. There are categories in the external world, and there are categories of my mind. Should I be surprised if they fit? End quote. So I really think that pretty much destroys, if he's right, and I think he is, that destroys what kind of saying this radical skepticism 
And again, Kant did not put God in the center of everything. He derived God's existence. Well, once you do that, you're going to you're going to have you don't know whether your reason works. You don't know whether your senses work, and that's a major problem. As Schaefer points out, if a reasonable God made me, then why should I be surprised if the things I actually look at, the appearance of those things, are actually the way they really are? And of course, I agree with Schaefer. Yes, yes. you could take a less extreme view of Kant, as I believe. Karl Popper did. He liked Kant, but he did take a lighter view than what we've just described there by saying that, you know, when we observe things, we don't see them absolutely perfectly. But nevertheless, you continue to think about things, you continue to do experiments, and you gradually spiral in on what it is you're you're investigating so you understand it better and better. Well, that recognises there's a kind of trivial truth to the fact that we don't observe things exactly as they are in themselves. Uh, right. But nevertheless, as you say, our minds are constructed, from a Christian point of view, our minds are constructed such that surely we do have a reasonably accurate apprehension of the world around us. That makes absolute sense. Yeah, it's a critical realism, right? Mm. Like if you shove a pole in a water, I mean, do you really think it bends? No you realize that, you know, there's something else going on there. So realism would say, yes, I, I see the pole in the water. Oh, it's really bent. No, a critical realism would say, no, there's something else going on here. And I think um, I would agree with um, Popper and, um, and I would agree with Schaefer. Now, it's interesting that the next person, who I think may be the villain in the piece, I don't know. There you go. <laughs> uh, we brought him up a number of times, and he's very well known, perhaps not very well understood, but certainly very well known, is Georg Hegel. Prussian philosopher, and he absolutely loved contradictions and really ran with them and built a philosophy based upon them. Do you want to tell us about why perhaps Georg Hegel should be considered the villain of the piece? Sure. Well, basically, as we talked about in the last interview, how truth is changed in our society and how it's perceived. And really, Hegel, the reason I put him is because he had a lot to do with it. Before Hegel came along, truth was based on antithesis. So, well, for example, if, if someone said God exists and someone else said God doesn't exist, one of them would be wrong. But see, Hegel came along and he changed all this. He was a dialectical thinker. He was very concerned with how history unfolded. So for him, the unfolding of history represents what he called the thesis. And then it was confronted by an antithesis, uh, which confronts the thesis. And there's a conflict between the two. But this is where Hegel changed things. Instead of rejecting either one of them, he retained some of each and then also rejected some elements of both. So what happened here is truth is no longer absolute. It's not based on antithesis anymore. It resolves in a synthesis of the thesis and antithesis. So basically, he's got kind of a new concept of truth. It doesn't follow the laws of logic. As far as today goes, it's like this wishy-washy notion of postmodern theory of truth that we have. Mm. Well, I'll give you one example of how it's affected, like in our public school system. Um, the teachers come in, or they're called facilitators. They come in, the values that the children bring from home, that would be the thesis. And then the antithesis would be the values that the educational elites want instilled in the children. And it gives them cognitive dissonance. The kids, they hold two opposing thoughts in their head at the same time. They know what they were brought up with at home, but they're also now considering what the teacher facilitator wants to propagandize them with. So how does this resolve? Well, it's resolved in a synthesis. So after the resistance of these kids is broken down, 
they accept the new values and they capitulate. So you end up with the values that the teachers want to put in the kids. Mm-hmm. So that's just an example of how this um, Hegelian notion of truth plays out even today. And the, the sort of hidden conceit with this, I mean, I understand that Hegel's triangle thesis, antithesis, synthesis is not something that he actually spelt out, but it's something that people have suggested as a diagrammatic way of describing how he developed his way of thinking. But I mean, the, the conceit in this as far as I understand it, is the idea that with the thesis, or whatever it might be, there's some grain of truth in that, but there's error in that. doesn't matter what it is, whatever it is you're saying, there will be some truth in it and there'll be some error in it. And then you'll take the opposite, the negation of what you've said. So you say God exists and somebody else says God doesn't exist. Well, in that antithesis, there'll be some element of truth in that and some element of error in that. And the synthesis is supposed to somehow take the good bits of both and bring us to a higher level of truth. And that's quite appealing to people in the sense that it says well there's some truth in everything it's quite seductive yeah that's true now that you bring that up i think it kind of plays into the because we're saying it's more of a postmodern theory of truth and when you think about it i mean look what you have with derrida's deconstruction it's just what you said the truth in the text they'll admit yeah there's some truth in it but you know what if you examine the truth in the text hard enough Um, it can be shown to contradict itself. And um, we need to get in there and deconstruct that text and dismantle its hold that it has on our thoughts and actions. But what you have then is you have this traditional hermeneutics just turned totally upside down. Interpretation basically replaces knowledge, and it just becomes this um, anthropocentric notion of truth. Everybody can ascertain what they want to from the text and interpret however they want and get their own personal meaning from it. Of course, you can't get your own personal meaning from something. The author intends something for you when they write. It's not just a matter of you getting your own interpretation of it. So um, that's just an example, since you brought it up, of how his notion of truth has even affected, you know, one postmodern thinker like Derrida. And also other ones like Bart, you know, um, Bart said the death of the author has to give place to the birth of the reader, uh, things like that. So. Mm-hmm. So the notion here is that you're gradually getting at truth through this dialectical process of one person thinks one thing and another person thinks another, and hopefully you're gradually moving towards the absolute truth at the, at the end of history, I suppose, would be the goal in Hegel's thought. Yeah, for him it was, yes. Well, yeah, I actually think that uh, Hegel's thought maps on to what you say towards the end of your book when you talk about the New World Order, and uh, <laughs> I can see a lot of Hegel's thought being useful for facilitating that but perhaps we will come back to that in a later discussion it's interesting that as i said hegel ran with contradiction and it's sometimes difficult to see the connection between kant and hegel i think it is difficult to see that so i just wanted to mention one thing that occurs to me which is that when kant was talking about you, you know you've got to try and see the noumenal and the phenomenal aspects of reality he was saying that there are certain ways of looking at reality that give you contradictions and he had these things called antinomies i think that's the way you pronounce it don't you antinomies yeah antinomies whatever antinomies yeah and they were like you know there were, there were contradictions you know if you you could say well the world began in time and then another argument would say well the world didn't begin in time and he had i think he had four of these and they showed that if you tried to investigate the world through empiricism or, or rationalism you ended up with these contradictions and zoe suggests you've got this split way of looking at reality which sorts that out when we look at the world we bring our interpretation okay fair enough so those contradictions start to dissolve away but Hegel doesn't do that. He actually says, no, those contradictions are a feature of reality and wow, builds this right. and builds this new way of looking at things, saying one thing contradicting another is reality because reality is somehow mind-like. 
and reality really is gradually knitting together through time using yeah. all these contradictions as you say a new way of thinking but turning everything on its head in a really disturbing way well look at what his student said this is interesting when challenged by a student um that what hegel said bore little resemblance to reality hegel said well, so much the worse for reality. I mean, that is incredible. That's <laughs> <laughs> lovely, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, that is really arrogant. You know, well, then what are we talking about here, Hegel? I mean, you yeah. know, if we're not talking about reality. Why even write about it? You know? Yeah, I just that just killed me. I put that in my book. It's like, well, so much the worse. <laughs> you did. Reality. I love that. Yeah. And by the way, have you actually tried to read some Hegel? I've got a copy of his Phenomenology of Mind or Phenomenology of Spirit. It translates both ways. And to be honest, I find it absolutely impenetrable it is i think everybody has i the, i tried a little bit i don't think it was that book it was some one other one that he did but i tried i got maybe about eight pages i'm like i, I cannot even understand this and so i then i picked a book on somebody who's commenting on hegel and i it's i couldn't even barely get through that so i mean it just yeah well that's the whole thing when you take away antithesis mm. you know where anything goes you know, you can't understand it because our minds are made so that we can understand the difference between truth, non-truth, yes. right, wrong. You know, our minds are set on the basis of antithesis. You know, this is real, this isn't real. And when you read Hegel, I mean, you're just in this Alice in Wonderland of I don't know what. Yeah, it's I would agree with you. I've got to share this with you. I just love it so much. And this is uh, going back to Karl Popper, actually, in his two volume book here, The Open Society and Its Enemies. And he comments upon Hegel. Can I just read this paragraph? Because I think it's just lovely. Having yeah, tried yeah. to read the phenomenology of spirit and, and thinking to myself, well, I must be really dumb not to understand oh. this. Here's what Karl Popper has to say about it. Quote, In order to discourage the reader beforehand from taking Hegel's bombastic and mystifying Kant too seriously, <laughs> I shall quote some of the amazing details which he discovered about sound, and especially about the relations between sound and heat. I've tried hard to translate this gibberish from Hegel's philosophy of nature as faithfully as possible. He writes, quote, section 302, Sound is the change in the specific condition of segregation of the material parts, and in the negation of this condition, merely an abstract or an ideal ideality, as it were, of the specification. But this change, accordingly, is itself immediately the negation of the material specific subsistence, which is therefore real ideality. Sorry, I can hardly say it without laughing. Apologies. <clears throat> which is therefore real ideality of specific gravity and cohesion, i.e., heat. The heating up of sounding bodies, just as of beaten or rubbed ones, is the appearance of heat originating conceptually together with sound. End quote. And Popper wow. continues. There are some who still believe in Hegel's sincerity, or who still doubt whether his secret might not be profundity, fullness of thought, rather than emptiness. I should like them to read carefully the last sentence, the only intelligible one of this quotation, because in this sentence Hegel gives himself away, for clearly it means nothing but, quote, the heating up of the sounding bodies is heat together with sound, end quote. The question arises whether Hegel deceived himself, hypnotised by his own inspiring jargon, or whether he boldly set out to deceive and bewitch others. I am satisfied that the latter was the case. <laughs> 
that's, oh, that's, that's a interesting. Lovely paragraph. It is because when you were reading that, what came through my mind is I was thinking, this is basically gibberish masquerading as profundity, and I'm glad that Popper said that because that's exactly what I was thinking. And that's what a lot of philosophy is. It's just there to try to confuse you. You know, it shouldn't be. It should be something to try to help us understand reality. But sometimes you wonder if these philosophers were they're intending to confuse mm -hmm. you. You know, I mean, really. Yes. Yeah, that's a wonderful quote. And there's also a sense of sort of arrogating the business of trying to find out truth totally to the human mind and discarding the notion that God might reveal anything to us, that perhaps there's an inevitability to ending up with absurdity because we are so limited as beings. Can we ever find out the whole of reality unaided? I am very doubtful that we could ever do that. Perhaps this is why we end up with absurdities. Yeah. Well, yeah, we can't this side of heaven. But like Schaefer said, you know, he's given us enough that we can trust our senses. We can trust our reason and um, and we can still ascertain a lot. And the other thing is, like you said before, if our reason and our senses aren't functioning properly, how would you have science? And we have made a lot of technological advances. I don't know how much technological advance we would have made under Hegel's paradigm. Probably none. <laughs> no. no, of course, one of the things we, we gained, if you can call it that, under Hegel's paradigm was Marxism, which is uh, a dialectical materialism rather than dialectical kind of spiritual stuff that uh, Hegel was doing. And uh, that's not something that we should celebrate having been bequeathed to us, I think. No. Um, what about Nietzsche? Okay. Because he's obviously a, another major figure that people talk about. When they talk about postmodernism, often people look back at Nietzsche and say, well, he was very decisive for that. Yeah. Yeah, actually, well, you're right. A lot of people consider him to be the first postmodern. So truth for him is really our own interpretation that's imposed on experience. So again, you know, this notion of truth that we're concerned about in this book, hmm. he was all about subjective. And um, Christianity sides with the weak, and Nietzsche didn't like that. He despised that because um, he was all about the will to power. So again, it was another anthropocentric thing here. For the individual, uh, this means power to impose one's will and interpretation on others. And Nietzsche saw Christianity as contradicting the will to power because it fundamentally was about sacrificing freedom and pride and self and christianity is about the supreme sacrifice which was jesus death on a cross and nietzsche just looked down on that he, he didn't like that at all so um it's also contemporaneous with evolution too in evolution you know only the fit survive and um, nature has no place for the weak it's very interesting that his interpretation of reality and his philosophy coincided with the advent when really evolution started taking off in the latter part of the uh, 19th century of course, Nietzsche is famous for the proclamation that God is dead, and everybody thinks that he meant, you know, God is literally dead or God doesn't exist, but that's not really what he meant. He, what he meant was that the idea of God is dead as far as having any um, significant cultural impact. Unlike other atheists who are trying to find meaning in life through concepts like, I'll well, say, truth and goodness, Nietzsche was just sounding a clearing call to follow his declaration to his logical conclusion. The death of God leads to nihilism. In other words, there's no ultimate meaning if God is dead. So the death of truth as well. I mean, in some ways, he, he he's a very strange kind of character, actually, isn't he? I, I, I quite like reading him, but I find him disturbing at the same time. But there's, there is a core of... Logic. Yeah, where he kind of takes Kant at his word and, and, and really runs with this notion that we can only see things as we see them and takes that to its logical conclusion and says, well, therefore, we can't really know anything. Everything is just your perspective, and therefore, 
truth itself is deconstructed to meaninglessness. Therefore, God goes with it. Everything goes with it, except what I, as a willing human being, want to express myself in the world as. I mean, it's... uh, and that, which is obnoxious. Um, I don't like the guy at all. But, you know, th- th- there is a core of, of reason in the sense of I'm not supporting him. I'm just I'm just saying yes, having right. got to that position of despair about knowledge, he then runs with it in a logical way. Right. He took it to its logical conclusion. I mean, it, yeah. it shouldn't surprise us that damage, you know, Nietzsche inflicted on truth, God, meaning of life. have also had, for example, for today, an unfavorable effect on morality. So, you know, for a non-religious person like him, there is no distinction between good and evil. You know, it, it makes sense, just what you're saying. If God doesn't exist, he's just taking these things as a logical conclusion. There's no distinction between good and evil. So for Nietzsche, the, the hero is the one who's willing to strike out on his own and exercise his autonomy and power. So that's how he came up with the notion of the Superman or the Overman, the Ubermensch. Again, he looked down his nose at Christianity with its slave morality and, you know, it invokes pity and weakness. And this has to be rejected in favor of mm. the dominant and strong. So... Um, Beloved of some Nazis as well. Yes, I understand. Yeah, he did. It fits when you're reading Nietzsche. It fits hand in glove. You keep on thinking of it, don't you? That's absolutely right. Like a prediction of Nazism here, or some aspect of Nazism. Yeah, he was not himself uh, a nationalist or anti-Semite, but you're absolutely right. The Nazis implemented his. Well, for example, his phrase of the will to power is Superman. Mm. You know, with the Nazis, and um, they actually considered him the representative voice for their philosophy. So. Um, we can summarize, if you want to, what's taken place so far, just in a couple sentences. Sure. Sure. Okay. So yeah. basically, if God does not exist, you know, if God does not exist or is no longer relevant, so we get that from Nietzsche, or he can't be trusted, that's Occam, then people have to decide what is right and wrong for themselves. So each individual must displace God as the center of the cosmos and impose their own will on the fabric of life. Well, there you're back to Nietzsche again. So in short, like what we've been talking about, the flight from authority, which occurred in the Enlightenment, which provides an overarching framework for understanding the Enlightenment, resulted in autonomy. You know, that's where you get the will to power, for example. And then um, this emphasis on the self. Well, we got that from Kant when he did the Copernican Revolution, where he turned morality upside down. And also with Descartes, he said you have to start with yourself, you know, the cogito ergo sum. And then theology basically handed the range of authority over to philosophy, as we saw. And then philosophy undercut theology and handed authority over to the individual. So basically, enlightenment has displaced God as the focal point for understanding reality, knowledge, and morals. And now, today, how it's affected us is man freed from the tutelage of revelation. Basically, it's become the be-all, end-all, and now the know-it-all as we take God's place at the center of the universe. So basically, the, the rise of the autonomous self, accountable to no one, is basically what is yes. occurring today. I find it very interesting that a lot of the motivation for what we've been talking about was the desire to know on a sure footing aside from revelation yes absolutely starting off though with the view that the human mind because the human mind is made by god you would still reach there you'd still get the answer and and you'd still have a a whole fully orbed view of reality and you'd be fine but it didn't turn out that way there's a kind of slippery slope about it that by taking on this responsibility, it slips and slips and slips to the point where you have this despair. I totally agree with you. Now, you would think, however, that the church, you would think that theologians would have been wary of this all the way through what we've been talking about, and they wouldn't have caved into it. But that's not the case, is it? No. No, it was just one series of compromises after the next, basically. Yeah, they should have stood their ground, and what they did is they just kept accommodating the Enlightenment thought 
and backtracking. And um, now it's affected us today because we're still backtracking. So, yeah, this happened with the liberal Protestants. Yeah. So do you want to tell us something about the general flavor of liberal Protestantism? I mean, obviously, that is a, a massive category, but how would you generally characterize liberal Protestantism? Well, basically, liberal Protestants, say back in the 19th century, they were trying to modernize Christianity. They were trying to bring it up to date with advancements in, say, philosophical, social, and historical studies. And so they did what the deists did. And those in the Enlightenment like that, they discarded the miraculous elements. They denied original sin. They frowned on the particularity of and exclusiveness of Christianity, just as their forefathers had also. They were also they were influenced a lot by the Romantic movement. So truth is found in uh, religious experience. Well, Slayermarker, for example, the father of a liberal Protestant, you know, he said it's a feeling of absolute dependence. So things were not based on reason. was a reaction against the reason of the Enlightenment, the dry, formal, arid reason. So it started to become um, even more man-centered. Um, there was other strands in there for two. I could just go over them real quick, like pietism was a reaction against the dry rationalism and of the Enlightenment, and it was based more on subjective experience. And the subjective experience took the place of the Bible as authority. Um, you had the awakenings that were taking place at the time, which was also a reaction against the ecclesiastical authority. Um, but those awakenings wouldn't be in the liberal strand, would they? They would be in more the no. That's a good point. Call an evangelical strand, but nevertheless, centered in a heightening of, of religious feeling. That's a really good point. Yeah, you're absolutely right. That should be distinguished from from liberal Protestantism. But what it did was it, it was a reaction against the ecclesiastical authority, and it did make more for a, again an anthropocentric view because basically they're saying you don't have to go to the church to find salvation; you can find it on your own. So it went to more, of a, again, more of a subjective um, experience. But you're absolutely right. That should be distinguished from liberal Protestantism. That's a good point. Um, because there are a lot of good things about the Great Awakening, aren't there? Yes, yeah. And the casting off of ecclesiastical authority. The reason I put the Great Awakenings in is not so much to put them in the, in the realm of liberal Protestant, and I should have distinguished that when I first brought that up, but is because the Great Awakenings are really what made Christianity over here in the States the hegemonic force. You had like the uh, Methodist circuit riders and the Baptist farm preachers. They were spreading the gospel all over. So it was their monumental effort that made Christianity over here in the States the hegemonic force and the moral underpinning for our country because of their monumental effort. Mm -hmm. And they were also another form of reaction to the Enlightenment in, in, a, in a different kind of way. Yes, that dry, again, the, that dry, formal, arid, you know, mm -hmm. that you have to belong to the church and this and that and the next thing. They said, no, you can, this is an individual thing. And see, this is what happened during the Romantic period is things were moving towards individualism, which also you can trace that back to the Reformation, you know, the autonomy of the priesthood of all believers. So that had effect too. Was, was that wrong? No. But it is this move towards the autonomy of the individual. So you have the Reformation, that autonomy going on there, the Great Awakenings, pietism. This is all moving towards a subjective experience. And you can see it in the stats even today is that people want to come up with their own religion. They have this like really eclectic view of religion nowadays. They'll say, well, you know, I'll just take a little bit of this religion, a little bit of that. And so that attitude that's going on today started back here when you trace it back to um, the 19th century. I think one of the things which I notice when reading the book is it is incredible 
incredibly complex web of ideas that you're talking about here. And, you know, as we discuss this, one could get the impression that we're saying, oh, therefore, there's something intrinsically bad about the Great Awakening. And that's that's not what we're saying, is it? No. We're talking about particular religious strands of behaviour and thought that are taking place. We're not making a value judgment in every case about the things that we're talking about here. No. And in fact, we were ta- you mentioned um, Friedrich Schleiermacher, who you say is often looked upon as the father of the the liberal side of things. And I often look upon Schleiermacher as being a sort of religious, um, more overtly religious version of Kant, in that he was kind of placing religion in the noumenal realm and saying it was all to do with religious feeling. And what he thought he was doing, though, I understand, was to make religion somehow sort of acceptable to um, sophisticated people at the time. Yeah. When you think about, like you said about Kant, Schleiermacher said, you know, the, the feeling of absolute dependence. Again, see, it's this notion of you're starting to lose objective truth of Scripture, and now it's starting to become more man-centered, where truth is what you begin to think it is. It's, well, we're not really sure what God is, but it's this feeling of absolute dependence that we have, that we all have. It's kind of almost this ecumenical thing. Well, we all have this feeling of absolute dependence, but he never really is saying, well, fine, what, who really is the God we're talking about that we have this feeling of absolute dependence on? It started to become this wishy-washy notion. Mm. So he's actually the father of liberal Protestantism. But you're right. I mean, when you look at Kant, I mean, Schleiermacher obviously was affected by that because now things are starting to move. What did we talk about? Into the realm of faith instead of reason. So, see, again, it was a reaction. This whole romantic movement that all this stuff was occurring at this time was a reaction Mm. against this formal, reasonable enlightenment. Now it's more of an anthropocentric, oh, I have a feeling of absolute dependence. Oh, I have to take things by faith. Well, what happens, though, is you don't – who is the God you're actually talking about? What is – who is this feeling of absolute dependence relating to? It's a different view of faith, isn't it, actually? It's not the, yes, it is. Not the biblical view of faith, which is a trust in the God who reveals himself. It's just a trust in, well, sort of hoping and, right. and feelings. And it's, it's very nebulous. You lose the notion of propositional truth mm. because you don't really know what you're relating to. It's, it's moved towards this experiential, emotional part of the faith instead of something that's objectively true or propositional. Mm. And somebody who we, we have to bring up, I suppose, in connection with this is Søren Kierkegaard. You, you talk about in the book a little, uh, I don't know what to characterize him as a liberal or, or not really, but certainly his approach to how you know about God fits with what we've just been talking about. It's a strange kind of figure. Um, did you want to say anything about Søren Kierkegaard? Sure. Um, well, basically, he followed the same thing. It was this existential leap of faith. So he's kind of known as the father of existentialism, that you have to have this existential, this self-centered leap of faith I think he said that there was like a qualitative abyss between us and God. And so the thing about Kierkegaard is, again, we talked about the notion of propositional truth. Well, what, what does that actually mean? We're talking about sentences, sentences that are trying to convey truth, like the Bible. It has sentences, it makes propositions. You know, Jesus is the only way to God, for example. You know, Jesus really rose from the dead. Mm. What happens, though, is Kierkegaard say, look, some of that stuff really doesn't make sense to a normal, everyday person. So... That's okay. We just have to take this existential leap of faith. But see, that starts to undermine what you just said. You know, the Apostle Paul didn't say that. He said, you mm-hmm. know, if Jesus didn't really rise from the dead, then our faith is in vain. You know, it, it, it doesn't make any sense. And so Kierkegaard is kind of undercutting that now with this existential leap of faith. 
you know, it's amazing. He railed against the institutional churches, but his way around it really ended up undercutting the Christian faith even more because you've lost the notion of you, you think you can circumvent propositional truth. You can just go ahead and have an existential leap of faith or like Schleiermacher, oh, I have this feeling of absolute dependence. But that's not really what biblical and historical Christianity is all about. Yes, I find Kierkegaard really weird, actually. Um, in some ways, I like him. He's a real depth of Christian faith, no doubt about that. But his view of faith seems to be on its head, really, in, in the way I look at faith, which I don't think I see eye to eye with you, that this is trust in the God who gives us propositional truth. But he seemed to think that faith was the opposite of that, that, you know, if he found a paradox, if he found a contradiction, then that was something to be celebrated. Yeah, something to be embraced. Yes, because, you know, in his view, you if something was easily understood then it didn't require any faith. You just almost had to believe it, like two and two equals four. Exactly. But if you, you, you were presented with contradictions in Christian, the what seem like contradictions or uh, paradoxes in Christian theology, instead of trying to tease those apart, develop you know, systematic theology, one say, or matter of philosophical theology of, of teasing all that apart to resolve the contradictions, I get from what I've read of him that he would jump upon it straight away and say, oh, good, there's a paradox <laughs> there. <laughs> and then say, that requires not just a quick ascent of my intellect, but that now requires something deep inside me, a, a real passion inside me to believe it, almost against my better judgment. But that therefore involves me deeply as a person, whereas believing two plus two equals four requires nothing of me. I mean, it's very clever. Right. But, it is. But, well, you know what? I think he was affected by Hegel because, see, Hegel, once you've lost that notion of antithesis, you know, and you don't have objective truth, you know, in propositional truth anymore, and Kierkegaard came after him, what are you left with? If things don't make any sense and you don't have a notion of antithesis and your whole notion of truth has changed after Hegel, well, then what are you left with? Kierkegaard's got the answer. Oh, it's okay if it's a paradox. We can just have an existential leap of faith. And I think that's the kind of thing that Richard Dawkins is talking about when he says, oh, well, religious people just take this blind leap of faith and it's all nonsense. Exactly. That's exactly right. And that's why we have to show people that is not true, that science doesn't have all the answers. It's just an epistemological tool. And that we do have reasons for our faith. And that's exactly what we're trying to show in this discussion today is how these ideas happened. So as much as you can appreciate Kierkegaard's sincerity, you know, he undermined, you know, that you can embrace propositional truth and that you can just somehow circumvent it. You're right. That's exactly what's given ammunition for people like Richard Dawkins. Absolutely right. Yes. And uh, following on from Kierkegaard, there was Rudolf Bultmann, who you also mentioned in the book. He seemed to go for this sort of inner commitment notion to the extent of pretty much, well, some people may disagree with me, but I think to pretty much jettisoning Christian faith and having something which was a very vague sort of belief in God, but he would centre everything on this on this feeling inside, this decision to believe. I find Bultmann very difficult to comprehend as well. How, how do you approach Bultmann? He's troublesome because basically he divorced Christianity from history. Mm. See, this is where you have this compromise where you're trying to hold down with Christianity with one hand. This is where the modernism comes into play. You're trying to hold on to Christianity with one hand, but you're trying to hold on with modernism with another. You don't want to look foolish. So, for example, like Baltimore stated somewhere, he said a historical fact which involves a resurrection of the dead is utterly inconceivable. And he said uh, somewhere else, it's impossible to use the electric light 
and the wireless and to avail ourselves of modern medical and surgical discoveries and at the same time to believe in the New Testament world of spirits and miracles. It's the same thing happening today. How can you people believe in in Jesus that was really resurrected from the dead? I mean, this is only like, what, a little over 100 years ago or so that Baldwin came up with this. You can see where this came from because we're starting to have technology. Oh, the electric light. And how can we believe in things like Christ's resurrection of the dead when we have such modern technology like the electric light now? Oh, it's utterly inconceivable. And um, yeah, well, on the face of it, that's <laughs> absurd. Isn't it? In fact, Alvin Plantinger in his book, Warranted Christian Belief, brings that up. It says something like, well, I can think of many people who are quite happy to use electric lights and they still believe in God and uh, exactly <laughs> and angels and all the rest but of it. But the thing of it is, yeah. these guys are so afraid of appearing foolish. They're, they're really more concerned about the praise of men than the praise of God. They want to try to hold on to their Christianity, but they won't do it at the expense of looking foolish. And for me, that's all it comes down to. They just don't want to look foolish. And they're trying to find a way to hold on to Christianity without looking foolish. But you can see it happening today with technology. The more technology we have, God is going to get pushed to the side. Who needs him now? We can't believe in that kind of stuff anymore. Here's what Baldwin did. He said, but you know what? It's okay, you know, if Christianity is divorced from history. That's fine. We just can take an existential leap of faith, you know, like Kierkegaard did, and then we'll meet him in that faith. So it actually doesn't matter whether Jesus really rose from the dead. We can still meet him with our leap of faith. The Christ of faith, not the Jesus of history. But I do wonder what the content of Bultmann's belief really was. Well, it's hard to tell. Really, when you think about it, he really was kind of the beginning of what um, Schaefer called the new theology. The reason you can't tell what they actually believe is because they just mystify you with all these terms. You know, you don't really know. Now, Bultmann, he did. He had, what, the uh, the kerygma, where you got to get to the kernel of what the gospel really was. Um, but when you get to the kernel of what Boltman thinks the gospel was, you don't really end up with much because he divorces it from history. So they just use the terminology and whatever, and you just take your existential leap of faith, and you'll, you'll be fine. Christ will meet you in there. But that's the beautiful part about Christianity. Christianity is grounded in history. It's verifiable. You know, it's not, it's not taking things like a leap of faith like what started with Kant. You can look at it. It's a piece of history. So you can't yeah. ever divorce Christianity from history. This is something real. This is not something we made up. It's real. Yeah. It happened. This train of thought reaches its zenith, really, with the death of God, so-called theologians, people like Thomas Altizer, and um, I mean, John Hick wouldn't be in the same category as the death of God, would he? But um, Probably not. No, no. Uh, Don Cupid over here in Britain would certainly be in that camp. Um, but for all intents and purposes, you could probably put Hick there. I mean, because really, but he talks about the real. Yes. Right? I mean, what is the real? You know, he was a genuine Christian at one point. That's you right. Know? Again, I think it comes down to a fact of you don't want to appear foolish, so you start discarding one thing after the next, and pretty soon, what are you left with with Hick? You're left with the real, whatever that is. You know, it's just, it's just a word. It's just a this, word. At the end of the day, it's just a it's just word. A, yes, yes. Not, Everybody believes in the real and has different ways. You know, Buddhists have one way of talking about it. Christians another way. Uh, exactly. Muslims another way of talking about it. What the real? Well, what is the real? And when you analyze it down to its fundamentals you've got something that's both personal and impersonal i mean it just it cancels itself out and becomes a zero point really in my mind um yeah so i see what, I see what you mean in a sense it's a kind of death of god um but at the same kind of time as this was happening so we're talking about the middle of the 20th century ish we actually have another strand that starts coming to the fore, which is philosophical theology brought to life again by, uh, I think many people recognize that Alvin Plantinger was a major, perhaps the major figure 
in doing this, um, of course, always with these things, you can there are lots of other people involved as well. But nevertheless, it seems to centre in the figure of Alvin Plantinger, reviving this sort of fully orbed way of looking at reality so that it's not just autonomous reason, but bringing God back into the picture and, and making a, a, a real sense of looking at the world from a Christian perspective and defending that. And somebody who was very indebted to Plantinger, of course, William Lane Craig, Dr. William Lane Craig, who's done so much fantastic work over the years yes, in is. apologetics. Do you want to say something about uh, William Lane Craig and, uh, you know, and perhaps Plantinger as well, the new uh, confidence, really, in Christian philosophy? Well, Plantinger, what I think he did, just in my opinion, opinion i think what he did is he took the burden of proof off of christians and said no we're not going to accept that burden of proof so when you go down through the enlightenment and say well Locke, for example he said well we'll defend the reasonable christianity is true because it's reasonable well then all of a sudden they decided it wasn't reasonable anymore so they said you need to come up with reasons that christianity is true so this is called like evidentialism and basically what planting it is he pulled the rug out from that and said look we're not playing by your rules anymore okay mm. we have beliefs that we don't need to prove. It's part of our noetic structure. Um, they're properly basic beliefs. One of those properly basic beliefs is the existence of God. So, for example, I can't prove that you have a mind. I can't prove other people have minds. I can't prove that you have history. I can't prove I have a history. You can't prove these things, but they're just something that we know. It's a part of our properly basic belief. But what Plantinga said is the belief in God is properly basic. Properly basic beliefs, you don't need proofs for. So basically, I love it. What he did is he said, we're not playing by these rules anymore. We are not accepting the burden of proof of that. We can provide evidence. We can do that. In fact, that will transition us to William Lane Craig. Um, Before you get on to Craig, and I would love you to talk about him, I was just thinking that Planter, of course, was getting his ideas from Thomas Reed, who was a contemporary of David Hume, who we talked about before. And what, what I find interesting about this is that, in some sense, it's not just going back to the days of Thomas Reed. The vision of Plantinger, in some way, is going right back to the beginning of our discussion, in that, you know, he's saying belief in God is this properly basic belief. Then God is already part of the picture, and he's defending that. That's where we started, isn't it? Exactly. With Aquinas. Exactly. That's right. Well, that's part and parcel of the worldview. So, in a sense, Plantinger is going right back to those days and defending that position right but it's a very great pity that that couldn't have been defended all along. no that's right <laughs> well because these fellas started playing by all of the philosophy's rules you know it was basically evidentialism you have to come over the evidence for your beliefs and we do have evidence for our beliefs but we don't have to because god hardwired us to believe in him people have to worship something yes. you can see that in human beings they have to worship something so we have all these different religious beliefs but people have to worship something they know that there's something out there bigger than them. And basically, Plantinga is saying, we're not playing by your rules anymore. We know God exists because he hardwired us that way. Um, William Lane Craig and other apologists like J.P. Moreland, and they've provided an arsenal of evidence for the Christian worldview. So I would just recommend to anybody out there, there's got to be some folks sitting out there and wondering, hey, I, this is interesting, and I've thought about believing in God, but I'm not really sure. I would just encourage whoever that is out there, pick up some books by William Lane Craig. I know that you have some listed right in um, The Mind Renewed. You know, go online, look at some of the debates that um, Dr. Craig's had with atheists. He, he wins them all. And then just take a look at that because, well, for example, like the Easter season's coming up. We believe that Jesus Christ died on the cross for our sins and that he was risen from the dead in space-time history. 
This isn't something that we made up. It isn't something that we believe in just to get us along and so that life can be easier for us. We believe it's the truth. We believe this actually happened. And there's reason for it. This is not a Kantian thing where, oh, well, we just have to put God in another compartment. Oh, we're not really sure if, you know, if he exists or not. We like Kierkegaard. We just have to take it as an essential leap of faith. No. Um, we have reasons for our belief. You know, God perforated our history in the person of Jesus Christ and the Jews first. But through Jesus Christ, he came down here. It's verifiable. So I would encourage people to look up some of William Lane Craig's books. Um, I would start with the historical evidence for the resurrection of Jesus, because if that did not happen, all of Christianity comes crashing down. But look up the historical evidence for the resurrection of Jesus. The best hypothesis you can come to is that he really was risen from the dead. And if he was, then he was who he says he was. And he said that he is the only way. He paid the price for our sins. And um, it's just something important to keep in mind where all this discussion is gone as we move closer to the Resurrection Sunday in the Easter season. Yes, absolutely. And while you were saying that, I was also thinking, well, I'd said that planting in a way was looking back to Aquinas in some ways. And I think William Lane Craig as well, because, you know, Aquinas had these uh, ways of arguing for God. So does William Lane Craig. And he has a collection of arguments for the existence of God, doesn't he, that he talks about in his debates and lectures. I don't it five or six that he concentrates on, and they're, they're very rigorously defended, aren't they? Right. They're very simple, but he's got, you know, sub-ideas to back every single one of them up. He's got evidence for every single one of them. And any normal person can grasp. They're very accessible, you know. Yes. He, he's a top-notch, world-class apologist, and uh, so I know you've interviewed him before. I did have the opportunity. I, no, to, I didn't actually oh, interview No, I didn't. I saw him on your website. No, I don't know how you got that idea. Um, I've got some of his books on my website, but I haven't interviewed him, no. Really? No. <laughs> Not yet. <laughs> <laughs> I thought, sure, I saw it on, on your website. Now, I remember oh, you saying oh. that you, you thought you'd actually heard his voice. Yeah, I, I, I I've said that to you the last time. And yeah, I, that's right. That's right. And, I've, and I think you corrected me, and I still had it in my head that, you know why? Because I went on your website again, I think I saw, you know, I don't know what I was no. seeing. I have actually made a request to Reasonable Faith, but they haven't looked okay. back to me. That's, oh, I, yeah, I thought I'm, you I'm, I'm too small, I expect. <laughs> oh, okay. Maybe in a few years. <laughs> no, but I've seen the people you have on there. It's just, you know what, just keep plugging along. I'll tell you what, I'm impressed with the people you got on there, and I'm impressed with the books that you have listed up there. I, I'll tell you what, when I saw my book up oh, there, cool. I just think it's the greatest thing. This should even be put, my book put in with William Lane Craig's book or whatever. I mean, that is, it's an honor. Oh, well, I'm glad you felt that way about it. I mean, certainly I was, I conceived of your book being alongside Schaefer, you know, as the next book that he would have written if he'd been you alive said that still. To me last time. I've told <laughs> yes. people that. That is yes. the most gigantic compliment I've ever gotten on that book. I mean, because I know you mean it. You saying that really makes the scholarly effort I put into it all worthwhile because you understand it is an important book. It is something that churches need to hear, that people mm-hmm. on the street, Joe Sixpack needs to hear. It really has kept me going a few times because I'm, sometimes I think, oh, this is so difficult trying to, you know, like I'm working on my next book. Absolute pleasure. And I, I did enjoy it very much. And it is important also for what we're going to talk about next time, which is the way the world is shaping up with respect to what people are calling the new world order and how in your book you make it clear that this modern stroke postmodern way of thinking really doesn't give us a ground that we're going to be able to withstand the challenges of the future we really do need to be grounded in the God who is there, to quote from one of Schaefer's books, in order to be ready for what is going to happen in future. And of course, that is going to be what we're going to be talking about next time. But do you want to say anything about that just before we end to sort of provide a segue into next time? Sure. If we have left God behind, 
uh, let's put it this way. Betting against the Bible is a dubious endeavor. You're going to lose if you bet against the Bible. And we are heading, maybe not this generation, I don't know. But I did lay out some scenarios of where it appears we're heading in regards to the book of Revelation and the Antichrist. Um, you can see some of these things starting to come together with a cashless society. and They're trying to eliminate large bills in different countries. Um, they're trying to eliminate the $100 bill over here. You can see clearly we're heading toward a cashless society, um, which appears to be more than hinted at in Revelation 13. It does seem to be consistent with that prophecy, doesn't it? It is amazing. You know, I would, that's another thing I would encourage people. You, you don't have to just read William Lane Craig's books, but just look at how some of this stuff is playing out. How could someone who wrote 2,000 years ago talk about you won't be able to buy and sell without a mark and now you have RFID chips, you have credit cards. I mean, most of the money that's passing hands is not cash anymore. It's through credit cards. It's not a coincidence. It was written 2,000 years ago, and it's happening today. You're not going to want to bet against the Bible. And I just wanted to lay out some scenarios of where it looks like we are in the scheme of things and then um, how I think some of this stuff could start playing out. Of course, we'll have a better idea as we move closer to the end of the age. But I think we are getting there. We're getting there. And I think, like, even my book I'm working on now with transhumanism, that's another strand of technology that is showing that we're heading in that direction pretty rapidly now. Yes, indeed. And I very much look forward to our next conversation where we're going to be talking about that. And no doubt we will have, as always, we'll have slightly different ways of viewing what may or may not happen in the future. But nevertheless, I'm sure we're pretty much on the same page with respect to the fact there are going to be tremendous challenges coming along and that at the end of the day, the one who is going to be uh, supreme and who's going to conquer this whole situation is going to be God himself. And it really does behoove all of us to be sure that we are on the right team when it, when it, right. When it comes to the, the final day. I couldn't days. say it better. That's yeah. absolutely right. Well, thanks ever so much, Tom, for coming on again. It's been wonderful talking with you. And it's been pretty heavy going, hasn't it, this uh, conversation? Yes, it was. But, um, but really enjoyable. And I think it, it is good to, you know, to get into the nitty-gritty of things uh, sometimes. It is. And it will give us certainly a good basis from which to leap, to, to, to quote Kierkegaard again, <laughs> to leap into our next discussion <laughs> when we next meet so thanks ever so much for great. coming on great to speak with you thank you so much for having me on i really appreciate it thank you julian i really enjoyed that thank you thank you